I'm John Hazelwood, a landscape architect at Hassel, and this is Hassel Talks, a podcast series exploring the diverse perspectives, open-minded collaborations, and creative insights that we know will be the key to navigating the increasing complexities of our world. As designers, I believe we have a rare opportunity to influence how nature can change our experience of the city and the urban environment. I grew up in the wilds of Northumberland in Northern England. It is a landscape of dramatic seasonal change, and my memories and the emotional attachment I have to that landscape are driven by that change. Landscapes in constant flux, whether it's a blaze of bluebells on a woodland floor or the rust red of bracken and larch plantations in autumn. This couldn't be further removed from my life in a modern city such as Sydney. But this connection to ever-changing landscapes and those moments of delight have inspired a bit of an obsession with understanding how our city's landscapes and the gardens should be living things that grow and change, not monocultures or clipped and mown, static or finished on the day they're installed. In this podcast, I wanted to dive into the thorny subject and the debates that surround native and non-native approaches to planting, a subject often driven by cultural and political and sometimes environmental dogmas. As with so much discussion in current times, it can feel quite divisive, driven by emotion and anecdotal responses, rather than quantitative or researched opinion. Recently here at Hassel, we've been working very closely with Professor James Hitchmo from the University of Sheffield. As an academic, an author, and a leading proponent of the naturalistic planting design movement, James is ideally placed to help us navigate this subject, a subject that will become more and more relevant in this changing world. Hi, James. Welcome. Hi, John. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. If we start at the beginning, why would we want to use natives in the first place? I I think, obviously, uh, natives are really fundamentally important, particularly at the larger scales, uh, because natives have a fantastic capacity to regenerate, to essentially, through self-seeding or whatever, to be immortal and to form the fabric of the landscape, you know, which, which which is immortal and clearly... Are you know are important for landscape character? What 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 places look like, and also supporting a lot of life. So at that scale, you know, we really have to have native species. So green infrastructure and beyond. I mean, clearly, many non-native species will also self-regenerate, but of course, culturally, we call that invasion, and sometimes it is hugely problematic. So it's a question of actually, natives can do that, and that's their properties that we really need especially at the large scale. Well, look, I'm going to bring our second guest in straight into the conversation because I suspect there'll be lots for us to discuss between us all. In another podcast, we spoke to Robert Hammond, um, the co-founder of The High Line. Uh, and today it's a great pleasure to be joined by the designer of the planting on the, on the High Line, Pete Oldoff. I think it'd be an understatement to say Pete has transformed the direction of planted design over the past 20 or more years. Um, through his extraordinary planting designs, his groundbreaking nursery, the author of many books, most of which I have to say are gracing the shelves across the room here. Um, So welcome, Pete. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. We're wanting to explore the the emotional connection to nature. Yeah. And that's that's driven a lot of these conversations, and particularly how it translates into an urban environment in in terms of how public react to, um, to nature in an urban environment. When I spoke to Robert Hammond, he mentioned the story of asking you about the High Line. He asked if he, could, he asked you if you could call it a natural landscape, and I think you said that there's nothing natural about it. It's idealized nature. Yeah, it's a sort of idea you have from nature. It's a romantic idea of nature, and I think it is 
of course not true. Uh, I think of course it's romantic, it's wild or it's wilder, a sort of wildness it has uh, over it. And also because the, let's say how we maintain it is, has to do that we can let things go and we let uh, things <coughs> intermingle, we let things that we like uh, take over a little bit if other plants don't do well. So it's a managed, idealized wild landscape uh, because it's more than just decoration. It has several layers. It has, because of that, more depth. People feel well in, in that situation, so in that human scale. And I think that is also benefits not only the insects, but also people's well-being. And I think that is important. Of course, we try not to use plants that uh, are, are overtaking other plants. You know, We try to put plants together in a way that they behave very well, that they work very well, that it's like a community, like a, a habitat. Uh, but if a plant escapes, it can only escape in the street planter. And that's why I totally agree that on the, on the scale uh, James works, I wouldn't use non-natives, you know, it has, makes no sense for, to me. But I work in gardens and gardens are made to make f- people feel happy. It's often seen as a bit of a dirty word, the word garden. I would describe any of the places like the High Line or Small Pocket Park in the middle of the city as being a garden. So that, that idea of an enclosed pocket space in the middle of, uh, of streets in a city should have to be native just doesn't seem to quite make sense when you're what, what you're trying to do is invoke an emotion as you've talked about. I mean, you've seen how people react to the planting on on the High Line or in the Lurie or James in your in your work. I don't mind if people make little gardens in the street. You know, I don't mind if they grow vegetables there, and as long as they take care of it. And mm. I think if you create gardens with only natives, I have the idea when it's on a smaller scale that people don't recognize it as a garden. They think, okay, they didn't take care of this, so let's throw our rubble in it as well, you know, so that they see that it's not taken care of. I think it needs more to be more intense, needs that sort of beauty. But I think that's really the challenge for landscape architecture, isn't it? It's to be able to see our work as a gradient from situations which are very small uh, to situations which are very big and be able to see that perhaps different plants might be really important at different points across that gradient. Often kind of query the, say I'm based in Sydney and I'm describing a native that's from 4,000 kilometres away in, in Perth on the, on the other side of the country. Are they native? A much better way to think about what nativeness means. It's what nativeness is really about. It's about it's about what are the ecological relationships between the plants and an area in which they've evolved. What are the relationships with other with other other organisms, for example, animals which might feed on those plants, whatever. You know, that, that's a much more meaningful way to think about these issues. A lot of insects are very, very comfortable, especially pollinators, you know, on a whole range of species which are not, not native at all. And there's now a very big evidence base, you know, that nativeness, while natives have many, many positives, you know, in many cases, they're, they're not actually, in the, in, certainly in the Western European context, fundamentally worse than, than, than many natives are, you know. Designed landscapes, in some cases, might be super good 
for for nature, i.e. for invertebrates and this sort of thing. And this is very much borne out by the, the world's biggest study into relationships between landscapes and, and native pollinators. So in the UK, for example, this, this work has been done about sort of five, six years ago, uh, and pretty much about the largest bit of work in, that's ever been done on this in the world. And what they found out is, is that the very best habitat for native pollinating insects it wasn't native vegetation, it wasn't meadows, they looked at those. It was actually vegetable gardens. The reason for this is just that, as Pete said, you know, people were actually gardening these plots very intensively. There was always food, there were always new flowers, you know, and therefore you had this like a supermarket. I think there's all kinds of considerations why you do things, why you work with less or more native plants. There's a big difference when you work in a city or outside the city. When you work in a typical uh, unspoiled landscape or in a sort of rural place, you know. It was invited to do with the planting design for the Delaware, new Delaware Botanical Garden in southwest Delaware. And I think that also worked out that it was completely in the middle of a nature preserve. You know, there was a... a, a an inlet and there was a woodland and I think and that's where I really am careful to use plants that not as you know are overtake or, or seed out so I, I use more than 70% of native plants in that planting design the plants were well used in the context of where I was working I'm disappointed often of the, sometimes when you come to a, a garden public garden that the government or the municipality comes with a list of plants you're uh, allowed to use because I think yeah that doesn't make sense because uh, most of the plants have then to be native and I think people that give me the list probably don't know what it means uh, having a garden and that it is a rule that is made up it's a generalizing idea of how planting should be uh, 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 allowed. Yeah, yeah, and that's very frustrating because it actually reduces plants down to just like a, an administrative bureaucratic thing. It's no, no longer about, it's no longer even about supporting nature. It's not, and it's not about human beings. I, I always want to try to do something which is, you know, as unique to that place as possible. And as soon as you have standardized lists, you know, you, 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 you make that sort of pretty much impossible. You know, we're so often expected the landscape is finished when it's put in on day one. It's clipped and it's mown and it's, it's managed within a millimeter. That idea of spontaneity and the unexpected is interesting. I think that really gets the heart of it, doesn't it? That change in spontaneity. Historically, I think we saw spontaneity and sort of what you might call wildness and the ecological look as being essentially very linked to uh, native species and you know and if you use non-native species they had to be used in very formalized or very rigid a bit like the english garden of the 1970s and 80s but what's actually happened i think increasingly particularly in western europe is is that sort of ecological look has become very popular and very much used for plants no matter where they come from now so it's 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 no longer you're no longer defined style is no longer defined by plant origin. Yeah, I can tell you that I could make a native garden in America and the US because the country is so big and there's so many species. But if I do that in the Netherlands, you know, uh, making a, a garden that works over, over all seasons, 
it's hard for me to find the right selection of plants to create a garden that works for uh, you know, 12 months. And I think that is also a difference at the scale of a garden where uh, James talk, talked about the scale of the landscape is very important. And so, so for me, non-natives are essential to create the sort of beauty that I need for, uh, uh, for the gardens I do. And my gardens are a small scale, you know, even in the city, even if it's the high line, it's a small scale landscape where you can discover everything that is happening. And, and, and James, you've, uh, uh, following your Instagram, when we were allowed to travel, you seem to be um, all over the world, whether it's China, Kazakhstan and, and, and South Africa, uh, hunting out plants. How important do you think that is actually get, uh, getting out there and finding new species that just haven't been, haven't been used or just uh, are un, not, uh, aren't understood? I mean, what we have tends to be, have been selected to be used in a certain way. And as you begin to try to imagine new sorts of vegetation, you sometimes need new species, which didn't make sense previously, but now using them in mixtures and this sort of stuff, now you need species which can can coexist with other things, you know, and, and that creates a need for different sorts of plants. So for me, you know, looking at things in the wild, I mean, I, you know, A, it gives me a, a, a very good understanding of how plants work together, how they interact. But it just gives me a chance to imagine new creative possibilities and how that works out for both wildlife and how it works out for people in terms of well-being. You know, and, and that's really, you know, what this is all about. You've summed it up, really, that there's no black and white. I think you described it as a gradient of greys depending on where you are and what you need to achieve, really. Yeah. And the scale. And the, and the scale, exactly, yeah. Thank you both. Thanks, James. Thanks, Pete. That's been fascinating. It's been great to talk. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Great. I'm John Hazelwood. You've been listening to an episode of Hassle Talks. If you've enjoyed this conversation and would like to hear more, be sure to subscribe because I'll be chatting to more people about their adventures in planting. And thanks for listening.